0: A little book of Obadiah, we've got the, uh, the paper in front of you there and we've got a simple outline and an elaborated outline just as we have, uh, with, uh, each of the books that we've looked at. And tonight we are going to follow the simple outline once again. Uh, but look at the introduction material on the back and I'm going to, I'm going to try to read all of this if I can. It's a lot and I got to try to, you know, I'm only 27 years old, but sometimes my eyes don't know that. And so sometimes I get to looking at it and playing the trombone. So we're going to try and not do that tonight. But uh, let's begin reading, and let's read that introduction material before we jump into the book of Obadiah. It begins as a narrative. It says, a certain married couple had twin sons. Unlike many twins, these boys were as different as night is from day. From birth, it was obvious that they were dissimilar in appearance, appetite, and appeal. The older son was hairy. The younger son was smooth. The older craved sensual things. The younger was hungry for spiritual things. The older appealed to their father. The younger appealed to their mother. The older boy was by instinct a killer. He liked to tramp the wild woods in search of prey. Nothing pleased him more than to bring down a deer with a well-aimed arrow, skin it, and bring the red meat back to camp. The younger boy was by instinct a keeper. He liked to roam the green pastures, sit beside the still waters, and gather a flock around him. Nothing pleased him more than to mind the sheep, breed them, care for their lambs, and bring strays back to the fold. The older son grew up to love this world. He did not care about God, the world to come, or the verbal traditions of truth that were his family's heritage. The younger son grew up to love the world to come. He cared about God, the family faith, the covenant, the things that spoke of Christ, and the pleasures that are at God's right hand forevermore. As we might expect, the boys quarreled bitterly. And to such an extent that bad blood stood between them. The enmity was so threatening that the younger son was sent away from home. He came back many years later, sadder, wiser, broken by God and born from above. The older son strayed away and stayed away, growing ever wilder and bolder and partaking of the spirit of the age. Over time, two nations developed from the families of the two boys. The two uh, people, the two families were related by blood but riven by everything else. Little love was lost between the two peoples, just as little love had been lost between the two brothers. Edom, the nation descended from Esau, was wild and godless, secure in inaccessible hills. It trusted in the power of its own might. Israel, the nation descended from Jacob, was chosen by God, secure in his love and shepherded by the Most High, in spite of its self-will and sin. Summing up the situation, God declared, Jacob, have I loved. But Esau have I hated. From the beginning, the Edomites manifested an unbrotherly spirit towards the Hebrews. David conquered Edom and put the country under tribute, thus making the elders serve the as prophesied. The conquest of Edom might have seemed like a good policy at the time, but thereafter the Edomites nursed an ever-increasing bitterness and hatred against the Jews, and this hatred produced one Herod who tried to murder Christ at his birth, and another Herod who mocked him before his death. The dating of the book of Obadiah hinges on the interpretation of verses 11-14. through 14. Some scholars relate these verses to events in the days of Jehoram. Others relate the verses to events in the days of Ahaz. Still others link the passage with Jeremiah 4914 14-16, and say that Obadiah and Jeremiah were contemporaries. The background of the book of Obadiah is an invasion of the Promised Land. Four invasions of Jerusalem are recorded in sacred history. The Egyptians, the Philistines, the northern nation of Israel, and the Babylonians all invaded the capital city of Judah. The Edomites, however, weren't involved in the first three. The Edomites were involved in the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Thus, this invasion seems to be the one to which Obadiah referred. The essential message of the book of Obadiah is that anti-Semitism eventually brings God's judgment. Nations that curse and persecute Jews will reap what they sow. They are attacking a people with whom God has a long-standing, unconditional, and irrevocable treaty. So if we were to give a theme to the book of Obadiah, I would give a twofold theme. One theme to the book of Obadiah is that of anti-Semitism, the mistreatment of God's people. And uh, certainly as you look through the word of God, you'll find lots of examples where God did not tolerate uh, a hatred for his people. I, I think that's very pertinent to the day that we live in because I think they're more hated today than they've probably ever been. That's hard for us to fathom living in this part of the world, although anti-Semitism is growing rapidly uh, in this country. But it's hard for us to fathom. Uh, The other theme, uh, I think, can be drawn from a passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Now, we've not really jumped around any at all in this uh, study, but I want you to turn with me. Keep your place in Obadiah, but turn with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 12. We've been preaching the past few Sunday nights uh, on faith out of Hebrews chapter 11. What a blessing it's been to see how faith has the ability to move things and mold things and make things and uh, do great and mighty things for the Lord and great and mighty things in us. But in Hebrews chapter number 12, we, we see sort of a changing of the theological discourse. And there's a verse that is about Esau. Now, Esau is not mentioned a whole lot in the Bible. In fact, you'd probably be surprised how little Esau is mentioned after you pass the life of Jacob and Esau. You don't hear very much about Esau as a person, but you hear a whole lot about the Edomites. You notice in the introductory material, it mentioned uh, Herod. And uh, you may be thinking, well, I didn't know that Herod was an Edomite. Well, you wouldn't know Herod by the name Edomite, but you would know him by the name Adunian. Uh, that was what the Greeks called Edomites, and you can sort of see the phonetical similarity there between the two words. Uh, Greeks uh translated that to the word Adumian, and so he was Herod of Edomia, and you'll see that oftentimes. I D let's see if I can spell right, I D U M E A in the New Testament. So you can correlate that with the Edomites. And I think it's very significant that after the life of Esau, the spotlight shines away from Esau and upon his descendants. Uh, Not simply because Esau is off the scene, but because of the truth that we learn in verse number 16. Well, we'll start at verse number 15 in Hebrews chapter 12. The Word of God says this, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. By the way, let me just point this out. It does not say, lest the grace of God fail of any man. We're not talking about losing your salvation here. I fail the grace of God daily, but the grace of God never fails me. So it says, lest any man... Fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So in the New Testament, there's nothing said about Esau, except for the passage that we read here. And there's one word that jumps out into my mind, and I believe it probably jumps out into your mind when we think of Esau, when we think of his history, when we think of the Edomites, and when we think of the story of his life. And it's the word found in verse 15 where the Bible uses the term bitterness. You know, I've never noticed this before, but I was preaching on Jacob and Esau uh, back probably a, a month or two ago. And uh, we were doing a series on Sunday nights about about the flesh and the spirit and, and seeing how those two correlated. And it's very interesting because after that, Jacob had robbed the blessing, not the birthright. Uh, Jacob didn't rob the birthright from Esau. Esau sold his birthright. Uh, He claimed that Jacob had stolen it, but he hadn't stolen it. He had bought it from Esau. But the blessing that was bestowed after Jacob had uh, robbed that of Esau, and he had robbed it of Esau, at least in a sense, the Bible says that Esau cried a bitter cry. And we see an event that takes place in Esau's life that marks him not only for time, but also for eternity. And so I think when we look at the little book of Obadiah, And when we examine the fate of the Edomites and the things that they did and their behavior, I think what we're really seeing is the story of bitterness. You know, bitterness never begins as a full-grown tree. It begins in you like it began in Esau. It begins as a root of bitterness. You know, there were times if you look at the story of Esau that he seemed to get over it. In fact, whenever uh, it was time to bury Isaac, both of the brothers seemed to put their differences aside and come together to bury their father Isaac. And many would no doubt look at that and say, well, good, Esau got over then we'll see a little bit later, Jacob approaches Esau, and he's not seen him in many years, and he's fearful that Esau is going to take his life. And most of you remember the story, that's the narrative where uh, Jacob wrestles with God, his name has changed Israel. But you remember when he met Esau, he expected Esau to try to kill him. He sent uh, Jacob had two wives, Rachel and, and Leah, and he sent them in two different directions. He said that way, if Esau kills one band of people, he can't kill both of them, can't be in two places at once, but when Esau met him, he He grabbed him, he hugged his neck, he kissed him, and he blessed him. Surely, in looking at that, we would think, no doubt Esau got over it. And yet the Bible tells us that though he sought a place of repentance, he never found it. In other words, Esau never made things right in his life between him and God. And it was over this issue of bitterness. Just because folks smile at you, that doesn't mean that everything's okay. Just because folks let it go... That doesn't mean that there's no root of bitterness. Let me say for our lives that just because we learn uh, to move past something doesn't mean that we've got it settled. We find that uh, that root of bitterness really, I mean, it affected itself in the children of Israel. There's no question the Edomites continually persecuted the children of Israel. But here in the little book of Obadiah, we're not reading about the doom of the children of Israel. Rather, we're reading about the doom of the children of Esau. And so we find that bitterness, if left unrepented of, and if left undealt with, can destroy not only us, but our children and our grandchildren and their children. Uh, no doubt many of you are familiar. You can't really live in this part of the country uh, without having heard of the Hatfields and McCoys. And uh, it's almost uh, you know we joke about it even. You know I mean they, I mean they've got a dinner theater up in Gatlinburg for, of course they've got a dinner theater for everything in Gatlinburg. And I'll tell you this, if you ever wake up looking for some fresh, clean, family entertaining fun and some pancakes, Gatlinburg, Tennessee is the place for you. That place has a an abundance of theaters and pancake houses. We know the Hatfields and McCoys. It's said that people really don't know what that feud started over. It's alleged that it started over a pig. Now stop and think about that. Think about how many people died over a hog. Well, you see, it really wasn't over the hog. It was over the bitterness. It wasn't over the pig. In fact, they say both of those men, Randall McCoy and Dev Hatfield, were both pretty wealthy men, at least to some degree in land and in, in livestock, and particularly Dev Hatfield was. It wasn't about the pig. It was about the principle. And we need to be careful, you know, that we don't get to a place where we're willing to die over something that's petty and silly and trivial. So let's look at the book of Obadiah, and let's take a few moments tonight, and it's just 21 verses, but uh, let's examine what God says about the book of Obadiah. Obadiah received this word from the Lord in a vision, much like many of the other prophets did. He saw what he is describing. Uh, I'm of the opinion, and we noted this in the introduction material, there's a lot of debate about dating the book of Obadiah. Uh, a lot of the uh, rabbis always wanted to date it much older, Uh, then we date it in, uh, or then I date it, amen. Uh, I believe that the book of Obadiah was one of the later minor prophets to be written, and that's why we've handled it here almost at the end of the study. I believe that Obadiah's prophecy probably took place somewhere around 500. Uh, B.C., oh, maybe 550, 580. I believe that Obadiah probably was an eyewitness to the invasion at Jerusalem. He didn't have to be. God could have shown it to him. There's no question that God did show him some some things in this vision. But But I'm of the belief that Obadiah was also there. And I see no reason to date it much earlier. Most of the people that want to date it much, much earlier, they want to do so to try to place the the context of what Obadiah is prophesying about as a much earlier battle uh, and, and downfall that Edom faced. But uh, beginning with the conquering of Edom by Nebuchadnezzar, a, a series of events was set in motion that led to the destruction of the nation of Edom. Edom was a city that was uh, uh, nestled in the hills and in the mountains. Uh, most of you have heard of the city of Petra before. Petra was uh, one of their chief Cities Teman was another one of their chief cities. You remember one of Job's friends was from Teman, and uh, he was an Edomite. But literally, the the nation of Edom was carved out of rock. And actually, the, the name Petra of their chief and capital city literally means red rock, because the city was carved out of the hillsides there. And the Edomites trusted in the fortification of the mountains that surrounded them uh the destruction of Edom did take place the uh, and, I, and I never think of how to pronounce this right, but I believe I'm saying it right when I say the Nebatian Arabs uh, were the ones that finally laid the death knell upon the nation of Edom but Nebuchadnezzar had set in motion those events. Well we'll begin reading. I feel like I'm teaching before I'm reading. that's never a good idea. All right we'll begin in verse number one. the Bible says the vision of Obadiah thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. we have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rocks, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring thee down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle. Though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. Uh, The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O teman, shall be dismayed uh, to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by Slaughter. So as we begin the prophecy of Obadiah, God begins to describe what he's going to do to the nation of Edom. Now again, you almost have to understand the geography of the situation. It's been said before that, uh, that there's no history book that's worth anything but doesn't have maps in it. And uh, Edom that sat to the southeast of the nation of Israel, as I've already said, was carved out of the rocks. And God names about five things he's going to do to Edom. Now you have to understand that the the prophecy of Obadiah, much like the prophecy of Amos and Hosea concerning the Assyrians and the prophecy of Nahum concerning Nineveh, was coming at a time when there was really no big reason to believe that this was going to happen to Edom. Edom was uh, in an alliance with the nations that were around it. Edom had the uh, the the luxury of not really having to go to a lot of wars and and fight a lot of battles because of its defenses. Uh, I tell you what I kind of think of when I think of the nation of Edom and think of that geography. Maybe this will help you kind of help me uh, when it occurred to me. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you remember. Now, how many of you watch westerns? Is there anybody? Okay, a couple. I, I thought that might be the case. I thought all you watched was Christian movies. No, that's okay. And when you watch westerns and you see them, and there they go into the badlands and into the canyons. And here they are, riding through a a ravine, through through a gorge that's not even wide enough for three men to ride side by side. And they're winding in and back to some outlaw's hideout. Picture that as the landscape of the nation of Edom. With soaring cliffs on either side, they were pretty much impenetrable. It was said that uh, an army of 12 capable men could withstand the onslaught of an army with the way that the geography was laid. Literally an army would have to bottleneck and go almost one, maybe two at a time, back in to get to the nation of Edom. And all around, much like the the Indians that you'd always see in those old westerns, the Edomites would be up on top of the hilltops, able to shoot arrows or able to launch things down at them. And they put a lot of confidence in that. But because of the size of their nation, because they were at a very, very critical place geographically, because they were at a great trade route, uh, there's a place called the Valley of Moses, and... uh it's actually very interesting because the Valley of Moses was one of the key trade routes at that time. People that were coming from uh, the, the north, from the Mediterranean and were wanting to go down uh, maybe into Egypt or maybe into the Far East would have to travel through this trade route. And that route was the very one that the Edomites refused to let the children of Israel use when they had left Egypt and were trying to get into Canaan. And it was because of that very trade route that Nebuchadnezzar most likely came and assaulted and plundered Edom because he wanted access to that. Uh, part of the reason that Edom was weakened as well is just because the economy changed. Uh, you know, we, we talk about that in this day that we live in. Well, they had an economy then, and as caravan routes became less and less significant, uh, there was no need really for there to be a nation there, and so there was never any real rebuilding of Edom after that it had been destroyed. So that's the geography of it. You can kind of paint the picture in your mind. And God names a few things that he's going to do. Now, I want you to notice, first all verse number one. This is interesting. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. Now, you didn't know the Lord could tell rumors, did you? It's supposed to be wrong to tell a rumor, right? But what is being said here, what God's trying to convey is I know something that Edom doesn't. That's what a rumor is, isn't it? That's why we tell rumors. We like to feel like we know something nobody else knows. And so Obadiah says, uh, the Lord tugged on my ear and he told me something that nobody else knows. Edom had made alliances with all the Arab nations that were around it. And the rumor that God had told Obadiah was that there was someone within that alliance of people that was going and was going to begin to change and shift that alliance and turn those nations against Edom. No doubt they had made an alliance to try to withstand the the Babylonian wave that was taking place. And Edom had a lot of confidence in the neighbors that were around. So Obadiah says, I've heard a rumor, and God is going to allow... A betrayal to take place. He says in verse number 2, notice this, here are the five things, and you've got them in your notes. The first thing that God's going to do is, Edom's pride will be brought down. The Lord says, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, thou art greatly despised. God says, I'm making you insignificant. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? He says to them, You think that it can't happen to you, but it can happen to you. Let me say that part of the reason we allow bitterness to fester in our hearts is because we imagine that we would have never made the mistake that the person we're bitter at made. We'd never do what they did. Or can I put it this way? It never happened to us we never treat someone that way. we never allow that to happen. Eden said, it'll never happen to us. We're not like these nations around here. We have security where we're at. The Lord said, though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Let me say that oftentimes the first step to overcoming bitterness is humility. You know, when you remember that they're a human being just like you're a human being, It'll go a long way to helping you get your heart right if there's bitterness in it. When you realize that they made a mistake, just like you make mistakes, the Lord says, Edom, I'm going to bring you down. Your pride will be brought down. Look at verse number 5. We see that Edom's wealth will be plundered. This is interesting. Again, we have a word picture here. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night... How art thou cut off? And the Lord sort of breaks in with a statement. How art thou cut off? He says this. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? I always think of these old boys. You ever watch cops? I know you watch cops. Everybody watches cops. You may not plan to watch cops, but if it's on, you watch it. I know you do. And you see these guys, and there's some fella that comes crawling out of a window at a house, and he's got his pants around his ankles, no shirt on, you know, and And, uh, he, he's coming out and he's holding a TV. You've seen it before. He's holding a TV and he turns around and there's that, there's that, uh, sheriff's department issued mag light shining right in his eyes. And he stops and he looks and the first thing he says is, this is a friend of mine's. I was just borrowing it. You know, you've seen that before. I've seen that. You know, he'd carry away the whole house if he could, but he can't. He's just got to carry what he can. And you know what the Lord says to Edom says that if you know if you got robbed, they'd only carry away what they could. But he says, When I destroy you, it won't be that way. Look at the next phrase. If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? In other words, the grape gatherers they intend on coming back. They want a vine to be left. They want something there. They would have left something. But listen to what the Lord says. He says, How are the hidden things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? The Lord says, I'm not going to leave anything, anything. When I destroy you, there will be nothing left. Much like the ancient city of Nineveh, it took until 1812 for the city of Petra to be rediscovered. Part of that is because of the landscape and the geography, no doubt. But part of it was because of how thoroughly God destroyed the nation of Edom. God left nothing. Let me say that, that there's something about bitterness. It's so entrenched, and it runs so deep. You know, sometimes God can obliterate our pride without annihilating us. Sometimes when it's lust or, or when it's greed, God can shake us to a place where we'll release our grip on that pet sin. But man, not with bitterness. It seems often we're willing to cling to bitterness to the grave, if need be. And with the city of Edom, God says, I'm not going to leave anything whenever I'm done. Look at verse number 7. We see that Edom's alliances will be broken. This was hinted at in verse number 1, but it says it explicitly here. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. Well, why would they go to the border? There's kind of two interpretations of this. Some folks think that it means they're fleeing to the border. I don't believe that. I believe that usually an army would come to the border when it's defending itself. And so I think the Lord says, the men of thy confederacy, the people that you trusted, are going to be the ones that bring them to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. You know something I found interesting about bitterness? And I know this is a little bit different lesson than I think what we've been teaching. But you know what I found interesting about Bitterness. Bitterness will, will make us common bedfellows with people that we have no business trusting. There's something about it. You've heard it before. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And sometimes in that common bond of bitterness, we we'll trust people we have no business trusting. Now I understand this was a divine work of God. I'm, I'm not implying it was anything less. I understand that God caused these alliances to fall apart. But I think it's interesting that Edom, in their effort to assault the Jewish people, would take to their confidence people that would betray them. And, you know, I found that to be the place. There's no man so careless as the one that's running from something. You know, when you're running to something, you pay a lot of attention. But it's when you're running from something that you begin to trip and fall. And with bitterness, we're running from something. We're not wanting to face our, our our anger. We're not wanting to face our problems. And you know what? Often we're not wanting to face. We're not wanting to face that that person is not all as bad as we think they are. There's nothing worse. I know you don't ever get bitter. I know you don't. But sometimes I do about things. I, I like to think that it's not perpetually. I hope that it's not. God judge me and clean my heart if I if it is. But but there's times that I get bitterness. Like everybody gets bitterness. And uh, it, it's interesting because. When we get bitterness within the depths of our heart, the first thing we imagine is that that person is so much worse than we are. And what we're really afraid of is finding out that they're not all that bad as we think. The last thing we want to know is something good that they've done. We don't mind hearing when they've done something awful, because that just indicates our position. We don't want to hear about the good that they've done. We don't want to hear about the suffering that they're Going for, at least not for the right reasons. We rejoice in it, but we don't want to have pity on them. The Lord says those that have been alliance to you, those that have been confederate with you, are going to turn against you. Notice verse number eight. Edom's wisdom is going to be destroyed. The Lord says, shall I not in that day, say if the Lord even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau. You know, one thing that bitterness does is it causes us to act foolishly. Causes us to act foolishly. Causes us to make decisions we never would have made. I I, I I'm going to use this terminology. I, I don't think that you'll be offended by it. I hope that you don't. But there's a common turn of phrase that we have in the English language, and it is this: that hell hath no fury as a woman scorn. Have you ever heard that? I'm sure you have. If that's bad, I shouldn't have said that. You go tell somebody about it. Okay, that's fine. But yeah, but it's true. <laughs> What are we saying? We're saying that there's a maddening effect that bitterness has. A maddening effect. Let me use another turn of phrase we're familiar with. Cutting off your nose to spot your face. That's what bitterness does. I understand the Lord saying supernaturally I'm going to do this, but I see a parallel. And I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I didn't plan on teaching this way, but I trust that the Holy Ghost has something for somebody. Because I had no intention of doing this or teaching this way tonight. I I intended on going through and giving you just a plain, simple exposition like we've done each week. But I see in this a parallel to what bitterness does in our hearts and lives. Or maybe what the Lord allows bitterness to do when we refuse to eradicate it and ask the Lord's forgiveness. Notice verse number 9. We see that Edom's army will be defeated. It says, And thy mighty men, O temen, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Can I give you another thing bitterness does? Is it weakens you. It fatigues you. You know, every once in a while, and uh, it's funny because ministry is an interesting thing. I, most people don't, uh, don't realize how exhausting mental work can can be. If you, if you have a job where you do mental work, then you understand that. And most people that do mental work, that they'll tell you this, and I sort of feel this way, that I'm a lot tireder on a Sunday night when I've preached all day than I would be on a Monday night if I've dug ditches from dawn to dusk. There is a fatigue that takes place of the mind. And let me say that I think there's a fatigue of the spirit that takes place too when bitterness sets in. And you just get weak and you get fatigued and you get tired of fighting, makes you irritable, makes you grumpy, makes you hateful. Bitterness sets in. Well, let's look at verse number 10. That was tough. <laughs> let's look at verse number 10. We see the divine judgment declared, but then we see the divine judgment defended. Now, God has described some things He's going to do to, to eat them. I mean, if the Lord gives me liberty, I may have to preach that in church sometime. I don't know. I kind of like the way it went. But in verse number 10, God begins defending what he's doing. In other words, he gives reasons that he's doing this. Why is he doing this to Edom? Well, look at verse number 10. Look what it says. It says, For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side. In the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast one of them. Notice first off, God describes their violence against the Jews. I think it's interesting the language that God uses in verse number 11. Look at it carefully. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side. What's the other side? The other side of the Jews the side that's opposite the side that they should have been on. You know, God made special provision for the relationship between Jews and Edomites. In the book of Deuteronomy, God commanded the Jews uh, to never do anything wrong to Edomites, but to always be kind to them, and always love them. And, and, and even the Bible says to accept them into the congregation after the third generation. So in other words, uh, after, uh, let's see, Esau's uh, children, grandchildren, great, his great-grandchildren, could be accepted into the congregation. God had a desire to see this long-standing feud buried, but that's not what happened. The Israelites were not guiltless, there's no question. But remember, the context is a day of destruction for the Jews. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says in that day that the Edomites was one of them. They stood by the side and they did harm and they did hurt to what was taking place. You know, sometimes not doing anything is doing something. Sometimes not doing anything is doing something. I don't know that they were necessarily deeply involved with the assault and attack on Jerusalem. In fact, history would, would say that they weren't really deeply involved, but when they could have come to their aid, they didn't, and they were counted as one of them. So we see that they were, uh, there was violence against the Jews they were committing, they were casting in their lot. Look at verse number 12. The Bible says, But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So we see, not only because of their violence against the Jews, but because of their rejoicing at the Jews' plight. They rejoiced. Now this, man, this is where it hurts. Because I'm going to tell you something. We, we have, I, you know, I'm a colloquial person. I'm very folksy. Uh, they if we had it to do over again, they'd put me on Heartland series. Because I'm always quoting these terms of phrase that we use. But can I give you another turn of phrase that really embodies this? They've made the bed. Now let them lie in it. That's what the Edomites said. When the Edomites saw what was taking place to the Jews, they rejoiced. I don't know how much outward rejoicing went on. Probably a lot. There was no secret about the, the disdain the Edomites had for the Jews. But let me say that for us, most of the time we won't rejoice outwardly when we see someone that we have bitterness towards fall. But we will rejoice inwardly. And we'll say things like this. I knew that was going to happen. Well, you didn't know that was going to happen. How would you know that one would happen to you? It could have just as easily. Or we'll say, I knew this was what was going to take place. Or maybe this. I told them so. And that's sort of a backhanded way of us rejoicing. At what's taking place instead of having pity, instead of being heartbroken at what's taking place in their lives. Look at verse number 13. The Bible says, Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. We see the next thing they did was assist the enemy. In other words, the Babylonians steamrolled into the city. They destroyed Jerusalem. And then here came the Edomites, like hyenas, like scavengers, coming in to to fill their plundering sacks, coming in to carry away anything that they could. And then you know what they did? This is awful. This is as wicked as it gets. But man, let me tell you something. We're guilty of it. Look what it says again verse number 14. Neither should have stood in the crossway. You know what that means, the crossway? The fork in the road. They stood at the fork of the road to what? To cut off those of his that did escape. I like the word picture that was painted by one of the commentators. And he described the scene. You can imagine, uh, and I understand this little bit of sanctified imagination, but I believe it drives it home. I believe we understand it when we think about this. You can imagine, if you will, a mother with two young children. Her husband has died in the assault on Jerusalem, and the invading army is, is marching through and doing the, the worst of things, and those things that are expected of an invading army uh, that comes in. And she manages, maybe through a hole that's been made in the wall, to escape with her and her two children. She's thinking to herself, I, I've managed to get out of the city. If I can get to the mountains, maybe to a cave, then I can find some way to, to, to translate my children and myself away from this madness and away from this carnage. And as she begins to run and begins to flee, the crying and the prayers of those that are dying in the city begin to fade away. And she breathes a sigh of relief and prays a thankful prayer and says, I've escaped. And then all of a sudden she comes to a place where the roads cross. And there are the armed forces, but they're not Babylonians, they're Edomites. They take hold of her and her children, they clap shackles on their hands and on their wrists, and they say, you'll not get away, we're taking you back to the Babylonians. You say, that's awful, preacher. That's awful. How could anyone allow that to happen? But, you know, sometimes I fear that we take our part in making sure that people get their just desserts. Can I put it this way? We pour salt on an open wound. We kick a person when they're down. There they are in the midst of their calamity, and we come in with one of these. I told you so. There they are, almost at the brink of some relief, of some encouragement, and we come along to remind them that they only got what they deserved. We might as well be clapping the shackles around their hands and their feet and dragging them back into their distress and their calamity. So we see that they were assisting the we enemy. Look at verse 15. The Bible says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon thy holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. We see that they ignored God's wrath. They ignored God's wrath. They ignored what God had done to Israel. They ignored what God had done to Assyria. They ignored what God had done to Egypt. And for this, amongst other reasons, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy you. There's very interesting language in verse number 5. Now, most of you know the golden rule. The golden rule is not Bible, but it is based upon Scripture. The Bible says uh, that we're to do unto our neighbors as we would have them do unto us. And that's, that's sort of where the golden rule comes from, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, this is the other side of the coin. Where there is a positive promise and encouragement to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, here is the negative warning that as we have done, so shall it be done unto us. The Lord says, this is what you've done to Israel, so that's what I'm I'm going to do to you. Let me make a political comment. I know pulpits aren't supposed to be political or whatever, you know. Maybe our... uh, White House would be more religious if our pulpits were a little more political. I don't know. But let me make a political statement and say that that ought to be the keystone of our foreign policy. That God does to nations what nations do to Israel. What we do to Israel, God will do. We turn our back on Israel. God will turn His back on us. We say sometimes, well, if we turn our back on God, He'll turn His back on us. Well, I don't know how true that is. Is that true in your personal life and there's plenty of times I turn my back on the Lord I mean I make a conscious decision to give up or or, or, or become a reprobate or, or an infidel but there are times when the Lord is trying to do something in my life and I turn away and I say no Lord that's not what I want done the Lord still shows grace upon me but the Lord says what you do to Israel I'll do to you that's how much God loves the nation of Israel what you do to Israel I'll do to you and such was the downfall of Edom. So we see divine judgment defended. Now I want you to notice the, the final part of this passage. We've seen God's message to Edom's neighbors and God's message to Edom. Why don't you to notice God's message to the Jewish people? All that is to be said about Edom has been said for the most part. Uh, the story has been told. Now they will be mentioned in the next few verses, but but God's given his prophecy on Edom. And he turns his attention now to Obadiah to the nation of Judah. There is no nation of Israel anymore. It's now just the nation of Judah. This is, by the way, the last prophecy that is given before they go into exile, uh, or at least that we know could be before they go into exile. And it begins in verse number 17, and God gives three promises to the nation of Israel. I want you to notice them with me. Verse 17 says this, But... Now, notice that word, but, in verse number 17. I like this. One commentator said this, that, the, that God's buts in the Bible, the word but, is the hinge upon which world events swing. God says, I'm going to do all this to Edom, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Isn't that interesting? They're already their possessions, but one day they're going to possess them. That's how it is today. Do you know that in the nation of Israel's history, even under the days of David and Solomon, Solomon's reign was the golden era of the nation of Israel. They they uh, occupied more land under Solomon than they've ever occupied in history. And, and in that time, they didn't even occupy a tenth of what God's promised them. It's their possession. God God made a treaty. God gave a title deed to that land, to Abraham. Did you know that in in all this earth, and I know that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm aware of that. But did you know that every single grain of sand, every single rock, every single blade of grass on this earth belongs to God except that which he's promised to Abraham? Abraham is the only person that God ever said, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. No one will take it away. It will be yours and your descendants. Now, I understand God owns Abraham, and so it's all God. But that's significant. It's their possession. It belongs to them. Let me tell you something. If You hear this word Zionist thrown around a lot today. You ever heard the word Zionist before? The Zionist movement? And it's used as such a derogatory term, you know. Anybody that is pro-Israel, you're a Zionist. Well, am I a Zionist? Now, if being a Zionist means that you believe that that land belongs to Israel, you believe that it belongs to no one else, you believe that they have no moral, biblical, or spiritual obligation to forfeit even a square foot of that land that belongs to them, You believe that one day the literal nation of Israel will occupy every single square foot of the land that God promised them. You believe that one day the army of Israel, led by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is going to defeat the armies of Antichrist. You believe that one day there will be a throne set up in Israel, and it's going to be an imperial and an empirical throne, meaning that it's going to be a literal throne, and it's going to be the throne of an empire. And you believe that a Jew that's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to sit upon that throne, that all the nations will stream under his throne and under his temple, you believe that God himself will sit down in Zion and rule this world. If that makes you a Zionist, then I am a Zionist. Because I believe that. I'm not ashamed to believe that. The Lord says they're going to possess their possessions. It says in the house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame. We see here the united nation of Israel. Jacob refers to the southern two tribes. Joseph is symbolic poetic language for the northern ten tribes. No longer two nations, but now one nation. Jacob and Joseph will be a flame. And the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord hath spoken. In some way, in some respect, and, and that, that land is still there today uh, of, of Edom. It's not the nation of Edom. It's the nation of Jordan today. But in some respect, there's going to be some sort of political reincarnation of that nation. uh I, I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know what name they're going to go by. But God promises that he's going to deliver Zion. And he says in that deliverance that Jacob and Joseph are going to be like fire And the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the house of Esau, is going to be like stubble. And that God's going to use the Jews to destroy the nation of Edom. God says, I'm going to deliver them. Look at verse 19. The Bible says, and they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau. And they of the plain, the Philistines. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. If you were to look at a map, you would find out that all of those places that are mentioned there, they of the south, they of the plain, uh, and the fields of Samaria, uh, the fields of Ephraim and Benjamin, all those are places in the nation of Israel. And it's saying that they're going to occupy the land that's around them. It says in verse number 20, "...and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath." You remember the widow of Zarephath in the Bible, which is a Gentile city. "...and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sephiroth, shall possess the cities of the south." The south would have been near Edom. So the Lord says, not only is he going to deliver them, but he's going to defeat their enemies. All these nations that surround the nation of Israel are going to be defeated, and Israel is going to possess that land. Finally, look at verse 21. The Bible says, And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We see that God will establish not only their kingdom, but his kingdom. Interesting usage of that word saviors. It, uh, it literally means deliverers, judges. But doesn't it put a whole new perspective on the parables that Christ gave about being faithful in this life and reigning, ruling in the age to come? And in that day, those that have been faithful to the Lord are going to be given a a special place uh, to rule and to reign in that kingdom. And I like the way the book of of Obadiah ends, don't you? The Bible ends this way. There's no real closing verse. It ends this way, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the final word that Obadiah gives. Aren't you looking forward to the day when the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? What the book of Revelation says. But really as we close tonight, I, I think the commentary in a practical sense rests on this, this issue of bitterness. I, I don't think we can really fathom what bitterness can do to a family, to a to a individual, to their heart and to their soul. But God gives a stark warning in the history and narrative of Esau. You know, you can't always see bitterness in somebody. Oh, you can see it by the time it gets to the place that it got with the nation of Edom. But you couldn't see it in the life of Esau after a certain point, but it was still there. I think we'd all do well to search our hearts, don't you? And say, Lord, if there's any wicked or unclean way within me, show it to me. Cleanse me of it. There's any bitterness if there's any human being in this world that I don't love with the love of Christ you know uh, I'm trying to be careful how I say this I don't like everybody I love you're probably that way people that you don't care for but you still love them with the love of Christ. Bitterness robs us and robs them of the love of Christ in our relationship with them and so I think that'd be a question to ask Lord is there anyone that I don't love with the love of Christ? And if there is, God forgive me of it and give me a love for them like you loved me.